Hello, this is Earl Fontenelle. You are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Westminster Terrorism podcast, online at Schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Professor John Dillon, Emeritus Professor of Greek, uh, Trinity College in Dublin, and a man who really does know a thing or two about Platonism and specifically the curious fate of the text of Plotinus and Stephen McKenna. So, John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Stephen McKenna, a great Irishman and a man who translated Plotinus into English in Toto for the first time. Who is this McKenna guy? What's what was he? What was his life like? Well, it was suitably uh, remarkable and and chaotic and and improbable. Really, he was he was born in eighteen seventy two as the one eldest or second eldest son of a, a rather romantic and improvident military man uh, who was Irish, but he was in, in the Indian Army, uh, the, the British Empire, and uh, had been serving successfully in India, but then actually resigned or deserted his, his post to go and, and fight with Garibaldi in Italy on a, a romantic whim. So he, he joined up with Garibaldi for a number of years, and as I suppose, Garibaldi won. And, and he came back to Britain, not Ireland, and settled down, penniless, more or less, because he didn't have a, an army pension, and married a wife, and had 10 children, as one did in those days, and, and tried to make a living from writing romantic novels based on his adventures. But they were really quite unsuccessful. And uh, one of uh, McKenna's earliest memories he records was these rejection slips coming through the letterbox. On top of all that, having produced his children, he died, Hmm. leaving this family. And fortunately, there were relations about two maiden aunts adopted Stephen and his brother, and uh, proposed to see them through life, I suppose. Again, they're still in England, and were very good to uh, both of them. Stephen was sent to respectable private schools, did classics, Latin and Greek, as one did, and in due course, uh, his aunts decided he should go to get a degree in London University. And he did the entrance exams. He had done very, very well at school. But strangely, he, he failed the English exam. Now, for a man who is a master of both style and literature, one can only imagine that he was trying to be a bit too clever. Mm. Uh, he obviously annoyed the, the examiners. And so he, he, he failed his, his entrance exam. And uh, his, his aunt's at that point, at a certain point, they, they went back to Ireland to live in a suburb of Dublin, Rathgar, and um, sent him to work in a bank. Okay. Like the most boring sort of thing he could do. And uh, he worked in the bank for a number of years, but he got more and more bored and frustrated wanting to write things. He managed to do a translation, actually, of The, the Imitation of Christ, by whoever, and got it published. He got it accepted by 
um, an Irish uh, publisher. Um, and this encouraged him to do a bit of writing. Meanwhile, his brother had got a job on a newspaper in London, and he um, got him to uh, find him a job there. So he got into journalism and was in that capacity sent to Paris to uh, report. And there had various adventures and met up with um, John Milton Singh, uh, the, the distinguished Irish playwright who was also hanging out in, in Paris. And again, rather like his father, he became very much engaged in the, in the freedom struggles of various nations, uh, Armenia particularly, and, and Greece. Right. Yeah. So this is the period before the First World War when you have the... This is the period where we're talking 1902 or three. Hmm. He, he was there. And he went off to fight for Greece. And again, he, he never seems to have engaged in battle against the Turks, but he reported amusingly about, about the Greeks. They're, they're a great nation of talkers and fine flowery speech on any subject will commend you to any Greek audience. So he he, uh, he had some fun sort of campaigning in, in north, northern Greece and came back to Paris then. And just for a period, and this is rather critical for his, his future, from about 1904 to 1907, he came upon Joseph Pulitzer, introduced by another American editor in Paris, and got employed for the uh, Herald Tribune as the Paris editor, or even the European editor, actually, and uh, was doing rather well in that. But again, he was getting bored. But in the process of being the, the representative, he went off to St. Petersburg in 1905 or so, well, for, for the unsuccessful revolution that was taking place there. And as he was covering the, um, the this uprising, he poked around among bookstores, as, as he did in Hollywood, and he found, among other things, Kreutzer's edition of Plotinus's Enneads and snapped that up. And then he was stuck in his hotel room for a number of days and started in to read Plotinus. And he just fell in love with with, with Plotinus, uh, and he conceived this grandiose notion that I, I was born to translate him into beautiful English, just on on more or less on, on on the spur of the moment. But as we see from his other projects, I mean, he, he kept a journal which Dodds has edited very usefully. Um, so you know, sees his aspirations. He had enormous aspirations for writing avant-garde novels and poetry and this sort of thing. And none of these really came to anything. So his plan to translate Plotinus would be ranked among those, generally speaking. But it stayed in his mind. And then a few years later in Paris, he quarreled with Pulitzer because Pulitzer, with unfeeling grandiosity, ordered him to get some some chickens and some ducks, I mean, uh, processed in each case, and bring them to the, the train station of the, the Gare de Lyon um, for transmitting down to Marseille to Pulitzer's yacht. 
and he was so insulted by this, by being ordered around with this, he resigned. Uh, now, he, he meanwhile married a, a nice American girl, Mary or Mary, who fortunately had a small income, but it was a small income. And he went off and off, and they went back to London for a while and uh, did a bit of journalism there. But that was the nearest thing he had to a decent job in his life, and it didn't last very long, apart from the bank. So in due course, then, they decided they, they, they hung about London for a bit and then came back to Dublin. And he got a job with the, the Freeman's Journal, which, which was the chief newspaper at the time, really, writing editorials and things. And so he had a little bit modest income. But at that point, he sort of reinserted himself into the literary and uh, intellectual life of the city, which was very much constructed around sort of the open houses, various e evenings of the week. Uh, it would be generally known that so-and-so might be uh, George Russell A.E. Or, or, or Singh or, or various uh, others who, who, would be, who would be entertaining. And uh, the uh, McKenna is also entertained. And uh, E.R. Dodds has done a great deal to preserve the life of McKenna. Of course, helped him a great deal. Has a very amusing description of his first encounter with McKenna when he came... He was a northerner, I mean, but he, uh, he, he developed very nationalist views and came down to Dublin in the, in the period before the war and consorted with all the Suarez. I could read that to you if you if it was. By all means. It's quite insane. Am I right in thinking that this is a kind of unpretentious Irish version of salon culture? It is salon culture, yeah. basically. Yes. My father enjoyed it a little later in the 1920s and has various stories of that. But uh, you, you had to get some sort of invitation. You couldn't just wander in, I think, brought along by somebody. It was curated. Yes, yes. But um, Dodds describes it as follows. Entering what had been the drawing room of some Georgian hostess, I saw a long, lean man with grizzled hair and liquid brown eyes, remote and melancholy as a peat bog. He was walking with a peculiar grace of movement, very softly up and down the twilight room, swerving now and again in his course to avoid a jutting piece of furniture or a heap of books on the floor. His face, upturned and serious, wore the illuminated look of an El Greco saint. And as he walked, he played upon a concertina. He did not interrupt his stride or his music for our entrance, but as the tune ended, his grave mouth suddenly wrinkled into a grin of welcome. I gaped, uncertain if what I had seen were pose or passion. Doubtless, like much of McKenna's behavior, it was both. Passion inviting you to laugh at it as pose, in the secret fear that you might laugh at it as passion. I think it's a, it's a most perceptive and amusing description. So that's how Dodds met him. Dodds himself was quite a romantic in a way. He was a northern Protestant origin, but his mother uh, had connections in, in Dublin, and, and so he had uh, connections back and forth. But he w went off to England to pursue an academic career. Meanwhile, McKenna went on working with the, the Freeman, 
But he also uh, began to pursue his, his plan, among his many other plans, of translating Plotinus. And what he did was to make a specimen translation of the first treatise in Porphyry's um, chronological list that's on beauty, 1-6, Plotinus on the Beautiful. And he, he had that printed up and sent copies around to people he knew, such as Yeats, for their approval. And they all were most suitably impressed. And it is a beautiful rendering of it. And this was to be the, the sort of sample and, uh, and the first ec- extract from this great project. Proof of concept. Again, nothing might have come of this because he was a great man for, for large plans. But um, he, he would have spent his rest of his life probably propped up in the bar of some hostelry in Dublin or wherever, explaining to whoever would listen what great things he was going to do. But what happened was that somebody, I don't think it was, it was Yeats, but it could have been Dodds, gave a copy of translation of 1-6 to a benevolent and enterprising English businessman, Sir Ernest Debenham, who liked to support culture. Is that Ernest of Debenham's, the department store? store, uh, The founder of of, of his department store, yes. So Sir Ernest so liked this translation that that he wrote to McGenna inquiring when uh, the translation would be uh, completed and whether he could have one. And uh, this put McKenna into a bit of a tizzy. And he said, well, 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 of course, it's a major project and will will not be completed anytime soon. So Sir Ernest then thought he would like to offer because he gathered that McKenna's situation was fairly precarious, you know, could offer a small subsidy to, uh, to, to, to advance the work. And this struck McKenna with terror because he, he thought he'd be trapped. And he politely declined that. But Sir Ernest did not give up. He approached publishers to write to McKenna and offer an advance on the next volume or volume one. And McKenna accepted that. It was £250 or something. And then he was trapped because he could never repay this. He'd had to deliver the volume. And meanwhile, all sorts of troubles happened. He, his wife, Mary, got ill of a mysterious sort of wasting disease and, and died after a few years and le- left him a bit bereft. But following on the, 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 the First World War, I should have mentioned that during this this period, he also became very, very interested in uh, radical Irish politics and um, Sinn Féin and the rising. I mean, one of his, his friends, who was a lecturer in, in the university, McDonough, was a, a close associate of Porrick Pierce. So when the rising broke out, he actually although he was a, very much of a man of peace, he would, wouldn't have been much good, marched down to the GPO and uh, offered his services. And uh, uh, Pierce politely declined them. Right. So he, he, he didn't t- take part in the Easter Rising. He remained a very um, firm Republican. And when uh, the Irish Free State was set up as a sort of practical compromise for all this, he was so pressed by that, 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 that he 
left the country. Depressed? Why? Because the the North remained uh, part of the uh, empire. Because he believed in the ideal of a republic uh, with no connections with the British Empire and everything. But then he decamped to Britain. Right. Slightly uh, illogically, perhaps, where he was then uh, taken up by Sir Ernest again. And these subsidies were continued. But then volume one did appear in uh, 1921 or so. And, uh, and uh, Sir Ernest provided a salary and, uh, and found him a place to live, um, first near London and then down in Devon. Good choice. Um, a good choice, indeed. And uh, he very much enjoyed that. And he uh, carried on producing volume after volume with great groaning and, and lamentation until 1930. He, he has a, an amusing letter at one point because he's lamenting and groaning all, all the time about the difficulties of things. But, but when he came to Ennead Six, and especially Six, One to Three, he was in despair. One and sympathizes. He, yes, he said. Um, he, he wrote to Dodds and said, I absolutely can't face this. Could you do this? Um, he said, I'm in agonies over the sixth and not the difficult parts. It is all too difficult for me and I wish I were dead. Though even that has its risks. I figure myself sometimes flying down the corridors of Hades, pursued by Plotty and him roaring. <laughs> so Dobbs uh, found him, a bright student of his, B.S. Page, who was prepared to do one to six, uh, sorry, one to three, <laughs> six, one to three, and groaning and lamenting, uh, McKenna did the rest. And I'm sure he tidied up one to three from, from a stylistic point of view. But the, the the great work was finally done, and, and that, as I say, remained his sort of job for his life. Meanwhile, uh, developed quite an interest in Buddhism and Unitarianism. So he abandoned Catholicism after a certain period. He had a nice saying at one point that, on the whole, my view is that the, the best religion is to be a bad Catholic. Even being a bad Catholic became a bit too much from mainly because the bishops supported the Irish Free State. I mean, it wasn't anything more theological than that. I think. Um, but but he, he 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 met a nice Unitarian minister down in Devon and and, and became attracted by that. But but also by the he used to have Buddhas all all over his study, and he maintained his love of the the accordion. He still played his his music, and developed a great interest in uh, learning Gaelic and trying to write things in Gaelic, um, which he never really mastered. He was trying to translate Sophocles' Antigone into, into Gaelic at one point. A friend of his who was a Gaelic speaker said, "Look, I'm afraid it, it doesn't mean anything in Irish or anything else." In his view. So he never got very far with that. And uh, as I say, all the other projects which we, we can see traces of in, in his journals and, and so on, novels or poems or whatever, 
never really came to anything. There were aspirations. And it's pretty certain that without the benevolent tyranny of Sir Ernest, the translation of Plotinus would have gone the same way. But as it is, it is a really great translation as Dodds testifies. I mean, we, we end perhaps by comparing a little piece of it, of, of say, one six with Armstrong, mm. which is uh, an extremely sound translation, of course. But first of all, um, this is just the beginning of chapter eight, the second last chapter in um, McKenna's translation. But what must we do? How lies the path? How come divisions of the inaccessible beauty, dwelling as if in consecrated precincts, apart from the common ways where all may see, even the profane? Neither does the strength let him arise and withdraw into himself, foregoing all that is known by the eyes, turning away forever from the material beauty that once made his joy. When he perceives those shapes of grace in bodies, let him not pursue. He must know them for copies, vestiges, shadows, and hasten away towards that they tell of. Beautiful stuff. Um, Henry Armstrong as follows. But how shall we find the way? What method shall we devise? How can one see the inconceivable beauty which stays within the holy sanctuary and does not come out where the profane may see it? Let him who can follow and come within and leave outside the sight of his eyes and not turn back to the bodily splendors which he saw before, which is more succinct and, and, and prosaic and accurate, I suppose. But Kenner's version has this distinctive cadence which he, he worked for. Um, it's a nice description of, of writing to Sir Ernest as to how he wants to proceed. It says... Um, I'm laboring for more cadence than in the, in, the, in the Christmas card. The card itself is rewritten mainly for cadence's sake. I think the new cadence far better than the old. Others may like it less. On that point, I can say nothing, except that I will permanently, continuously disagree with them. I like pebbles in my brooks and little bends in my roads and raggedy edges to my clouds. And I don't like Noah's Ark trees or wooden legs or regular spots of my cows. That is my testimonial literaire. Well, <laughs> he, he was flamboyant and self-important and, 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 uh, and so on. But he, he seems to have been a d delightful man. My, my father knew him and treasured him. He was rather older than he was. And uh, as I say, through a happy conjunction of, 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 of accidents, he did manage to translate the Viennese Protagonist, which is no mean feat. Bravo. Thank you for that, uh, that uh, literary testament to the man. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a couple questions going back over that territory in a few different ways. Um, he's an Irish nationalist, and he's caught up in what I gather was a sort of heady mix of avant-garde literary modernism and radical politics happening at the time um, in London, in Dublin, and all over the place. In Paris, probably, in the, in the Irish community there. One assumes that 
both his father's, and, and I wonder if you can tell me if this is a fair assumption, that both his father's romantic attachment to the cause of Garibaldi and his own military exploits, such as they were in the cause of Greek independence, were kind of like proxies for what both men really wanted, which was Irish independence. Is there something in this, this sort of Irish spirit of like, we identify with the small nation that's being dominated by a big empire and we want to help them get free. And then, you know, hopefully one day we'll get free as well. I think that has to be, yes. I mean, what, because we know all too little about what went on in his father's head, but he was obviously a natural romantic. Mm. Um, presumably, there was a, was a kind of substitute for uh, Irish independence. There was a connection in many people's minds. I mean, my own grandfather was uh, much sort of supported by a great old girl called Emilia Venturi, uh, who was English uh, and had married an Italian revolutionary. And she was a, a great um, admirer of Mazzini and decided that my grandfather was the Irish Mazzini. But that was the, the connection was being made all the time. So it's plausible that um, Italian independence was kind of made a, a substitute or, or a symbol of Irish independence. But they, I mean, there was an independence struggle going on in Ireland anyhow, but it was, it, it, it got sort of stuck yeah. because of the palm-like split and, and so on and so forth. Um, but certainly he, he had it in his blood there. And uh, coming home to Ireland, giving up the good job in Paris, admittedly, uh, on this provocation, but you know, he, he, he sort of had a, a feel for um, futile and romantic causes, I think. Um, or at least in his, you know, they weren't necessarily futile, but his part in them were, was. But uh, certainly he, he had uh, he developed strong, strong view, view views about um, the sacredness of the Irish Republic. Mm. Which again, I would regard that, that as a nice example of his, well, romantic, romantic inconsequentiality. Right. Because the Republic was not going to work anyway. No matter what de Valera had succeeded in doing, uh, we would have had to uh, end up in the relation we have with Britain as of now, almost uh, well, leaving Brexit aside, let's say. Hmm. Um, however, th that's typical of him, I think. And that he should go off to England in protest against the Irish Free State is rather nice. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the word sacred there, which brings me to my next question. Um, he's obviously raised some kind of Catholic. What are his religious views? I mean, obviously they evolve over time. And the reason I ask that is because when I think of other Irish modernists, mm. you've got Joyce on the one hand, who's deeply, you know, engaged with the whole Catholic upbringing and tradition, but he's not, I don't get the impression that he's particularly uh, a religious man. Then on the other hand, you've got Yeats, who is deeply religious, but looking in all manner of odd places, uh, occultism and so on, and coming up with this kind of Celtic romantic synthesis of his own, um, which involves a lot of kind of esoteric thought. So what is, what is McKenna's kind of take on stuff? What I want to get at is what Plotinus actually means to him, you know? Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, and you think. Um, well, now... 
not so much of that seems to, to come through, but the fact that he, he, he was um, intrigued by Unitarianism, hmm. which I did, disposes of the Blessed Trinity anyway, I think is significant, because obviously one gets nearer, nearer to the one in, in that way. But he doesn't seem to go on very much about being a, a Platonist, and he toys with Buddhism, but he doesn't sort of go so far as to become a Buddhist for personal reasons in the sense that, that, that he liked this uh, local Unitarian minister. He, he becomes a Unitarian, hmm. but not a very serious Unitarian. In fact, he, I think I have a note there of his criticizing Unitarianism for having been a good idea, but fallen into the hands of idiots, hmm. not including his friend or Right, died. So he doesn't, um, from what I read, give out much about how much of, of, of Neoplatonism or Platonian view he adopts. He sticks with a sort of sublimated Christianity. Interesting. See, um, now is he coming to Buddhism through the most common uh, European gateway drug for Buddhism in the 1920s, which was uh, the Theosophical Society and its diaspora? Is he sort of engaged with that kind of milieu at all? Well, he doesn't get in with them. He's quite a loner in that way. Well, he's down in his cottage in, in, in Devon and getting on well with with the locals, but he he doesn't sort of move in, in, in London circles or anything of that sort. I'm saying in a letter to his brother, Robert, is, of course, a lost cause. Largely, I think, because like the concertina, the most noble instrument of the most astonishing capabilities, it has fallen into the hands of idiots and never been given a fair chance. In a purified, non-institutional form, though, I said, he, he saw it as the religion of the future. But Buddhists, uh, he's described as filling his house with Buddhas, but just sort of symbolically. Hmm. But, but, but he would have been... He would have been aware of Yeats's concerns and interests, yes. A young lady who became a valued friend of his, Margaret Nunn, remembers Vinecott, which is his cottage, as from floor to ceiling in each room lined with books, except where in spaces hung musical instruments, mostly stringed ones, guitars, mandolins, balalaika. There were also clarinets and squeegees, concertinas, and there were Lord Buddhas of all shapes, sizes, and postures. And these were perched quaintly in corners where they caught the eye as you entered or left a room. I don't find much evidence of his um, going for Buddhism more than that. Hmm. Just like to have the Buddha there. Right. Now, in his cor his correspondence with Dodds is very fascinating because Dodds, of course, is um, went on, though, though from an Irish background, went on to become a mainstay of English or British... Uh, classical scholarship and really kicked some doors open for the study of later. So, you know, what what at the time was universally seen as decadent post-classical maunderings of a, of a decline and fall scenario, which no one wanted to study. And he said, no, this stuff is interesting. Let's study it. Although he didn't, you know, as you mentioned in a previous conversation, he would he wouldn't go. He balked at Iamblichus. <laughs> he was he was willing to give uh, Plotinus the the benefit of considering him a serious philosopher. But Iamblichus was 
a step too far. Very uh, dragging stuff down, yes, right. <laughs> but Dodds is a very, very interesting character from the perspective of the history of Western esotericism because he is, on the one hand, highly skeptical and and very much of the old empiricist school, but on the other hand, very interested in psychic phenomena, which are very much on the kind of scientific agenda in his era. He's head of the Society for Psychical Research uh, one year, I believe. He's the president. So he's interested in all that kind of stuff. Do he and McKenna ever chat about the oogly-boogly side of things in the surviving correspondence or anything like that? Well, Dodds um, preserves his correspondence to him to a certain degree, but it's a sort of all really about the books. There's a little um, one about actually it's a, a denunciation of prophetizers. This is from the spring of 1930. Um, he's writing from Eldine, which is another little cottage near Harrow, where uh, Sir Ernest established them later. We're uh, writing to Dodds as my dear youth and, ma- and master. Infinitely good of you. I'm honored and touched. I was invited to do something. Alas, it can't be. I went the other day to see a man and he sat me friendly like in a chair without a word, tore every bloody tooth out of my bloody jaw. On. I'm a dreadful spectacle and a mass of pain and I can't come from prison. By wits untied, if I survive, perhaps you'll speak again. Come and see me to a cold tongue and a bottle of wine in my, 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 my little place. The corner is pretty. Your idea that I'm toiling over plotty then there's innocence about scholars. I'm so happy to have shuffled him off to BSP page. I never look at him. I've done the best that's in me, a bad best, and I don't mess with them anymore. My idea of reading Plotty one day, the sole object I had in translating or trying to translate him, will never be realized. I can bear him no longer and will with my will never hear his name again. <laughs> it was all a ghastly blunder as well as a crime my illicit connection with this tempter of youth and innocence. Fortunately, I'm no longer young or innocent, and I've risen like, oh, excuse, I honor plots. Note, but henceforth at a huge distance. Never think I don't. I do, so there. <laughs> That's the sort of thing. <laughs> um, he, so uh, he wrestled with Plotinus manfully for what, like thir- over 30 years or something like that? Yes, 20- I mean, the bulk of his life, because he started in, in 1908, but then uh, after the, say, after the war, I think it's 13 years, actually. That's right. Solid work. And he's saying, I failed. You know, I tried and I failed. But yes. this is well, the judgment of someone with very high standards, with literary standards, right? The, so the bar he's setting for himself is, in a certain sense, vastly higher than the bar that someone like uh, Armstrong sets or... More recently, the interesting project of Gerson, the Cambridge Enneads, which you contributed translations to, which is attempting to make Plotinus clear and accurately translated, right? Um, McKenna's trying to make Plotinus into English literature. Yes, that is the the problem, yes. And it's, say, gloriously misguided in the sense that Plotty was not primarily concerned with, with literary flourishes or anything. It's purely incidental. And uh, he gets knotted frequently. So really the 
the task is to try and pick it all apart and, and um, make it into clear English. And Armstrong is very good at that, certainly. And uh, having done a bit of it myself, I, I quite see the point of that. You don't want to expand him too much sometimes, but sometimes one has to. And that's all you want to do, to, to, to try, try to convey what he was saying. But uh, McKenna wanted to do more, yes. He wanted to give him into, 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 into beautiful English. It's kind of a glorious there it was, project. Uh, it was, yes. And uh, it stands. Hmm. Well, I suppose his, he aimed too high. He set bars for himself so that he couldn't jump across. Hmm. But uh, high-class scholars like Dodds, who knew him and uh, had a lot to do with him, had an enormous respect for him. Hmm. Well, this is maybe the question when it comes to translation. Hmm. Um, is it more important to be utterly scrupulous and maybe pursue also kind of a standardization of vocabulary and stuff like this, like we see in the Gerson project, or is it more important to get the author you're writing? Because one gets the impression that on some level, McKenna gets Plotinus, even if it's not in a sense that he gets what it's like to be in late antique Rome and the kind of cultural context because Plotinus isn't that interested in his cultural context, right? He gets sort of Plotinus's vision in some way that no one else does, it seems to me. If you could overcome the boundaries of language and culture and all that kind of stuff and stick McKenna in a pub with Plotinus, they would have got on swimmingly. They would have seen eye to eye. They would have got it. They would have, you know, understood where each other was coming from, it feels to me, in a certain way. I think so. The evidence is that he worked away uh, playing things over in his head to, to get them quite right, giving Plotty more credit than he, he's due, in a sense, uh, but, but, but also trying to get under his skin and, and uh, yeah. how he would come out in good English. Certainly, he's, he's not concerned. I mean, you, you know my views on Lloyd Gerson and his uh, consistencies. He produces, not gibberish sometimes, but, but uh, mechanical. Yeah. For no reason. I mean, the especially in the matter of Greek particles. Plotty has means of using ge or e or things to introduce a new point and that sort of thing. And then you, you can't um, translate them the same way all the time. I'm of the same school of thought, definitely. So it, it's a translatio, is the transferal of an original into a cultural context of another language. That's the noble thing to do. I want to know exactly what he said. Read the Greek. Quite so. <laughs> well, John, thanks very much for telling us the story of Stephen McKenna and his Latinus. Okay. Stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>